This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's Thursday, January 26th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And here's the problem with personification. Everything becoming not a thing. Talking geckos, talking garden gnomes, talking waffles, talking mochi. Basically every Pixar movie. What if bugs talked? What if cars talked? What if fish talked? What if toys talked? Four times, plus a spinoff. See, today, Oreo introduced what they are calling the Oreo Oreo. And the thing is, if you haven't been following Oreo or aren't what insiders call Oreo-enophiles, they don't call it that, I made that up, Oreo has a lot of flavors, almost 100 flavors. Toffee Crunch, Snickerdoodle, Hot and Spicy Cinnamon, 1973 Chateau Montalina Chardonnay, Fudge Covered, Carrot Cake, Birthday Cake. Now, one of those might have been conjured up in an Oreo-induced sugar coma, but really, and also let's point out, Birthday Cake is not a flavor of cake. It's an occasion for cake. I always have chocolate hazelnut sandwiches on my birthday. That, by the way, literally another flavor of Oreo. But now there's this. The newest Oreo variant is called the Most Oreo Oreo. It has a larger portion of cream filling, and the filling is stuffed with ground Oreos. They're being called Oreo Stuffed Oreos, and as a result, Oreo Twitter was on fire. Here's YouTuber Marky Devo's reaction. The Oreo gods are back at it again. They dropped this huge-ass Oreo. This is the most Oreo Oreo cookies and cream. It was so big that they had to name it Oreo freaking Oreo. It's got loaded cream. It's like two cookies deep and it has cookie pieces. So no problem, right? Other than our national diabetes problem. And where does personification come in? It's not a person talking character Oreo. It's just an Oreo filled with Oreos all the way down. It's that in every article about the Oreo stuffed Oreo, there was a link to an article about M&M spokes candies, the sexy or relatable or oh-so-human candies that once asked us to eat them. And so now, when I think of Oreo-stuffed Oreos, I can think of nothing else other than cannibalism, which puts me in the minds of some things I once read about chickens who started pecking each other and end up eating each other. I'll quote from the Penn State University Extension School Poultry Cannibalism Prevention and Treatment Guide, quote, Cannibalism usually occurs when the birds are stressed by poor management practice. Once becoming stressed, one bird begins picking the feathers, comb toes, or vent of another bird. Once an open wound or blood is visible on the bird, the vicious habit of cannibalism can spread rapidly through the entire flock. If you notice the problem soon after it begins, cannibalism can be held in check. Yes, yes, we all need to manage our chicken cannibalism, and that's why I take foul don't. For moderate to severe outbreaks of chicken cannibalism, don't take foul don't if you're already on coop off or allergic to foul don't. They list why chicken cannibalism occurs. Overcrowding, brightly lit nests, quote, allowing cripples, injured, or dead birds to remain in the flock. They said cripples, their words, not mine. And then you ask the chickens, how could you guys do such a thing? And they just answer, I don't know, kind of tasted like chicken. The last reason that they give 
is something called prolapse pecking. It is the most disgusting food-related thing I've ever heard about. And yet I still eat chicken, no problem. I'm going to eat chicken tonight. I ate chicken last night. You have got to go out of your way not to eat chicken in America. But I do think of rampant, disgusting cannibalism when I think of the new Oreo stuffed Oreo, because everything is alive except my appetite and any pleasure that's left for a sweet taste that doesn't try to be another sweet taste or some sort of infinite regression of the same sweet taste. Sweet Sweet taste, sweet taste. 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 That's our advanced computer-assisted effects. What I'm saying is, and please hear me clearly and don't miss my point, what if they just put the green M&M in sensible flats? Espadrilles, something that wouldn't upset the Fox hosts or Catherine McKinnon. Why can't we have nice things is getting more and more complicated every day. On the show today, I spiel about those exhausted activists and how to burn it all down whilst avoiding burnout. But first, Ravi Iyer is a data scientist and a moral psychologist He worked for Facebook. He's now the managing director of the Psychology of Technology Institute at USC's Neely Center. And we're going to talk about on this day after Donald Trump was restored to Meta, Ravi's old company. We're going to talk about what he thinks social media should do to try to stop the spread of misinformation, the spread of angry reaction posts. And if he thinks we can content moderate ourselves out of this situation, Ravi Iyer up next. A couple weeks ago, the Wall Street Journal had a very well-reported story. Facebook wanted out of politics. It was messier than anyone expected. And the basic thrust of the article was when Mark Zuckerberg just said, this isn't worth it, turning the spigot from wherever it was to zero had, like the article said, some add-on effects. People didn't like it. Donations to Facebook-sponsored charities went well. Facebook didn't get any credit for being less toxic. Excellent." News outlets were deprioritized and places like Mother Jones found that fewer people were reading its articles. And, and this was a little buried in the article, but I thought the worst add-on effect that the percentage of just poorly sourced stories was higher in users' feed after Facebook tried to correct for what people saw as its toxicity. There seems to be no good answer for what Facebook can do to satisfy all constituencies. But a person quoted in this article and someone who worked for Meta, which is what uh, I think when he worked there, it was called Facebook. Now it's Meta, was offering, I thought, the best insight. And I wanted to have him on. Ravi Iyer is the managing director of the Psychology of Technology Institute at USC's Neely Center for Ethical Leadership and Decision Making. Ravi, welcome to The Gist. Thanks, Mike. I'm glad to be here. That is an impressive, at least the organization is impressively titled. <laughs> so, Well, you know, universities, you know, we, we, we like to explain what we're doing uh, in detail. I mean, is your journey a little like Alfred Nobel invented dynamite and then said, oh God, I gotta, I gotta found the Peace Prize now? <laughs> I mean, you know, I try to, I try to figure out what my path is, uh, you know, as I go. So uh, this is this is the place for me to be at this moment. No, but seriously, and we'll get to specifics. But did you look back at your time at Meta, and from what I understand of your tenure there, you were on the side of trying to advocate for less less toxicity and greater actual engagement. But do you look at it with enough either regret or just? Um, I don't know, just clear-eyedness that this was the next obvious 
uh, role for you to play societally? Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, so I'm grateful for my time at Meta. Um, You know, it wasn't easy. You know, I won some battles. I lost some battles. But, uh, you know, I really did learn some things. Uh, One thing I say to people is that we made things 3% better. And 3% is not an actual number. I just, it's meant to illustrate that, you know, we made a measurable difference for a large number of people. But there's a lot of things that are still left to be done. And there are some things we learned that I think apply not just to Facebook, they apply to TikTok, they apply to YouTube. And so I wanted to take a shot, take a swing at that other 97%. Um, There's some decisions to be made that I think aren't just metas. I don't think people at meta want to make those decisions. I think they'd be glad if people in the world, you know, understood the decisions to be made and and help them with them. Um, So I I do think that's the next step. It's, It's, I think there's a lot of good to be done. Um, and there's a, a cur- some kernels, you know, the, the one thing I might slightly disagree with from your intro is that I do think there are some things that we did that made a difference that were like positive. And I, I, I wouldn't argue that they solve the problem, but I think we can learn from those things and implement them more widely. Yeah, that seems true. And if I gave the impression, uh, another impression in the intro, will correct it uh, is, as listeners hear this interview. But as they hear the interview, just give them, if you would, some um, idea of your background. I know you worked for Ranker, but which is R-A-N-K-E-R, not the Rancor that maybe uh, we associate with some social media. But I also see you as a Google scholar. And did you work with Jonathan Haidt in the NYU psychology department? Just tell me about yourself a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I started my career as a programmer. Um, I decided that uh, it was meaningless to some degree. I would program like, uh, you know, some bank's phone system so they could keep track of all the phones that they they had with all their employees. And and so I decided I wanted to do something more meaningful. And so I got a degree in psychology. A lot of people in grad school end up studying themselves to some degree. So I studied myself. I studied like, what does it all mean? Why, why am I doing anything? Which led me to John Haidt. Um, and he was doing a lot of interesting work on moral psychology. Uh, we together, uh, so I, was, I actually got my PhD at USC. Um, but I met him at a conference uh, with a numerous other collaborators, and we together we built a site called Your Morals. We studied, you know, uh, people's um, psychology, how they make moral decisions. We wrote about them from a more descriptive perspective versus a judgmental perspective. So people who are interested in uh, understanding the other side as opposed to demonizing the other side would often read our work. You know, John obviously became more well known. So when I graduated, we had a small nonprofit, Civil Politics. Uh, where we actually helped bring liberals and conservatives together and measure the effects uh, alongside many partners in the community. And then uh, while I was in grad school, I also was uh, working at Ranker. Uh, so a friend of mine started a company called Ranker. Uh, and so I had this dual career uh, that started to blow up. It's about a hundred person company. It's not a giant company, but it's it's a decent sized company uh, in LA. And I, you know, I was working at Ranker and I was also working uh, on polarization. And I had a friend of mine who offered me, you know, said we're working at on polarization at Facebook. Um, this is a great opportunity to, you know, do some good in the world, sort of bring your disparate careers together. And so uh, that's kind of what led me to that point. Yeah. So Ranker is the kind of site that has best songs about breakups, facts about World War II. We just learned today that make us say, whoa, it's, let's say very populist. I don't think it causes toxicity. I don't know exactly though how it dovetails with the uh, Jonathan Haidt learning to understand the love language of the other tribes. I mean, it does get a lot of its traffic from social media. So I experienced the incentives of social media firsthand at Ranker. Um, I mean, it's less political, obviously. And and that's part of the article is that like, you know, maybe there are some things that it's okay to sensationalize like, you know, your song or your movie in a way that it's maybe not okay to sensationalize your political views. But uh, I definitely learned a lot at Ranker just about, um, 
you know, I was I I built their initial algorithms. I I it helped me like stay current in the tech space. Um, and uh, the, you know, I learned also about crowdsourcing. So if you think about uh, you know, best songs. I don't know, best songs to work out to, right? Like, like we're crowdsourcing signals at Ranker from people's lists, from people's voting, from, we're trying to get diverse opinions. At Facebook, you're also crowdsourcing, like, what kind of content should I show you, right? Like, you're taking the signals of people who liked it, people who commented on it. And there's similar kinds of patterns where, like, for example, diverse signals do better than narrow signals, right? So things that a narrow group of people like are tend to be worse than things that a large group of people like, which is something that holds true across all algorithms, whether at Ranker, whether at Facebook, or, or anywhere in the world the diverse versus narrow, how might that play out in terms of um, what Facebook is to some extent rightly criticized for, which is contributing to uh, extremism in politics and people's perceptions of the world? Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that social media, and we made a little bit of progress on there on this while I was there, but I think there's a lot more to be made. Um, one thing that is true of social social media is that it's easy for a small group of people to make something go viral, even though a maybe a larger group of people don't like it. And that's true in part because it's easy to say you like something, and it's really hard to say you don't like something, right? Like so, like if I want if I like something, the like button's right there. Um, I can share it. If I dislike it, I have to go like to this three dot menu in the upper right. It's kind of hard to tell that. It's kind of a pain. Um, one thing we did in our in my time there was uh, we made that a little bit easier to find, right? And so, like now, there's a little X on the upper right in, in many posts, um, and that gives you a little more signal on things that people might dislike. We had this uh, see more, see less feature, uh, which helps people see like you know what they explicitly want versus what they engage with, and so those are those are things that that help. Um, there are sites like Reddit, you know, which do that better, right? Which have more negative signal. And so, so things like adding more negative signal. And, and so one thing that I'd like to do in my time outside of Facebook is, you know, think about how we could reimagine the platform. Uh, you know, big companies, they are always going to move a little slower than startups. And there's a lot of innovation in the space as far as startups, uh, where people are really experimenting with these reactions, experimenting with like, you know, um, there's a there's a project, uh, the Narwhal project I, I, I started playing around with, um, and they have like a clarifying button or a new to me button, right? Like, what, if we really completely reimagined the reactions so that we had, you know, some amount of negative feedback, some amount of explicitly positive feedback, how could we use that in algorithms to shape our space to be better? So I don't like this, which is negative feedback. You're portraying it as rare and valuable, but... It's confusing to me because I think that a lot of, for instance, on uh, talk radio, the people who hate listen <laughs> are a major driver and making that format po popular. And also I'm thinking about the first time I encountered your name was in an article, I think it was in the Washington Post, about the angry button, right? So Facebook uh, had this, uh, a bunch of emojis and one was angry, like, I don't like it. This makes me angry, which wound up being uh, not the solution, but in fact, a source of a lot of the problems there, right? Yeah, I mean, and, and it's all a question of, uh, you know, the signals that you get. So, I mean, so some of the low-hanging fruit at, when I worked working there was just, uh, and, you know, I, I give credit to Facebook to some degree for this because they did this without the Washington Post article. You know, we, we did this before the Washington Post article came out, right? And so, you know, originally, um, love reactions, anger reactions counted the same in the algorithm, right? And so if I angered something or I loved something, I would get more of it. Um, now, it, 
logically, like a lot of times people are angry reacting because they don't like something. Like sometimes you're sympathetically angering something. Sometimes you're, I don't like that angering something, but it's not a pure signal that I want more of that thing. It's often a signal. I don't want more of that thing. Right, right. So you're saying like, sometimes there's an article about something that's supposed to make you angry in the world. Let's just take something legitimate. Like for me, what the Republicans are doing with the debt ceiling. I might press angry because goddamn what the Republicans are doing with the debt ceiling. Whereas a big fan of uh, Matt Gaines might press angry because they don't want to see the critical article of the Republicans. Yeah, or they might like dislike the framing, or they might think it's misinformation. Like, there's a lot of reasons you do it, right? And so it's right. not a great. But signal from what for I understand, people. I think, but from what we've been told about social media, is they don't really care. They just like intense emotions. That's what drives traffic. To some degree, but I think there's also a, a longer term view here. So you know, we did eventually change it so that angry actions don't count in the algorithm, right? And so, and. You know, it's 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 like baby steps, right? But the, you know, if if we had a perfect measure of what would be long term in the interests of users and society, I, you know, I think platforms would do that. The hard part is how do you measure that? And and it's really easy to measure the short term stuff. It's really easy to measure like I made a change, people use the platform more. Um, it's hard to measure something like what's going to happen in two years, right? Because you have to wait two years for it to happen. Um, there's an interesting article that Facebook Analytics put out recently about. Um, notifications, right? And this is like a very like low-hanging fruit case where they, they reduced the amount of notifications and in two years, they got more people to use the platform. If they could, some of these subtler things like optimizing for, you know, angry reactions is a simple thing. Um, optimizing for comments, like you mentioned, like people hate listen, right? And they write like something like, I hate this, I don't want this, right? Or this is terrible, right? And, you know, optimizing for comments is something that was done for political content and in that article you reference is, is, was taken out. And that's in part because of that. Like a lot of times, you know, generally a comment on something like, you know, like if we, if we went out for beers and we had a picture and like everyone was commenting on it, like that's probably something that, you know, people are going to want to see. If it's an article about like the debt ceiling and people are commenting on it, like a lot of times people are commenting and more like that, you know, I can't believe what that guy did or I can't believe what that guy did. And, and it's not necessarily a great experience for everyone. Maybe for some people it is, but not for everyone. And so, you know, just taking these ambiguous signals like anger reaction or comments out of our uh, incentive system um, is a step. And then it, it leads to thinking about what more steps one could take. How could we get more explicit signals of people's positive and negative reactions, as opposed to relying on these ambiguous signals, which often lead us in the wrong direction? Are there great signals? Are there gold standards of signals that are good for the platforms, but also at least neutral for society? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think, um, you know, anything where you get explicit, like, a person really liked this thing, right? So like a love reaction, right? Like it's not, it's unlikely like you love something and it was actually something that was like a bad experience for you, right? You you can like something that's a bad experience in part because it's like, um, you know, you people like things because they agree with the opinion or they, they're trying to be nice to the person. But if, if you go the extra step to love something, like it's probably like explicitly a good thing. There's a reason why the see more, see less button, you know, works well in part because it's explicitly, it's like, I want to see more of that. I want to see less of that. It's less, it takes, it disentangles the social signaling from like, I want more of that. Doesn't the love signal though optimize for cute cat videos, which I like, but I don't want to replace my idealized debt ceiling coverage. Yeah, and, and that's where like platforms that are experimenting with other buttons, right? Like ideally there'd be an informative button or a clarifying button like uh, like the Narwhal Project is doing, right? So like you need to experiment with some of these things. And that's where I say like, you know, we have some nuggets, but we didn't solve the problem. There's a lot more to be done. And, and I'm excited for the fact that, you know, I can talk to people you know, experimenting on top of Mastodon, um, you know, building all new platforms. Uh, there's like a half dozen of these, right? Like, and and people can build like 
a clarifying button or an informative button, you know, that, that, that can give you the idealized debt ceiling um, content that you want. Francis Haugen, who you quote appreciatively uh, in your writing, others have said social media optimizes for outrage, full stop. How true is that? I think especially for political content. Um, and that's why, like, you know, most of the content on social media isn't necessarily political. And you, and as the article states, like, that's something that people are trying to get out of, right? So um, for political content, um, there were definitely were some bad incentives. And that's why, like, that's why those changes were made. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, you need different, it, it doesn't have to be the case, though, right? Like, like, it's somewhat a function of the system that exists, one can imagine a different system. One can imagine like, um, you know, what they're doing at front porch, right? Like one can imagine different systems that are designed better. Um, and so, you know, it has historically been true in the political space. Um, in the future, it doesn't always have to be true. Right. So it doesn't have to be true and there can be better systems. It just happens to be that our dominant social media are Facebook, to a lesser extent, Twitter, YouTube, which emphasized or maximized for outrage algorithms. It, it just, unfortunately, this was the case with the ones that dominate our consciousness right now. Yeah, I mean, so obviously these platforms are not optimizing for outrage, right? They're optimizing for comments or shares, and that happens to correlate They're optimizing with... for engagement, which correlates to emotion, which is yeah. often outrage. But yeah. th that is changeable, though. Like, in, in, And so that is, again, what the is it article is Sorry to interrupt, but is it changeable to the extent that if you are sitting atop a massive billion-dollar or potential billion-dollar empire, you would be convinced, okay, we could change this without losing money or even with making money? I know it's changeable, but is it changeable and also extremely profitable as the old way has been so far? I mean, it's hard because it might not be. I mean, and so, and, and that's the innovator's dilemma. That's why I change. That's why I put my stock in some of these like upstart companies because they don't have to be responsive to shareholders or profits. I mean, even Elon Musk, I, you know, I see this kind of stuff he's posting and I'm, and I'm like, he's probably looking at his engagement and, you know, it's, it's clear that like he's experiencing the same incentives that many publishers say that they experience towards like the more sensational, the more divisive and also the more engaging. So I, I do think that like, it, it'll be harder for the big companies. Now, it's not like the big companies aren't willing to do it to some degree, right? Like that article has um, a change which led to reduced usage and therefore reduced ad revenue. Um, but it's a baby step. And there is more that could be done to reimagine the platforms entirely. And yeah, it's, I, I think it'll be hard for the platforms with their profit incentives to make the kinds of big changes they need to make versus a lot of these upstarts. So is the big problem that... Facebook, YouTube, the dominant social media are who they are. And so you've talked many times about you can imagine a way or there are other sites, uh, Mastodon, Reddit, doing things a little bit differently. So my question is, is the big problem that the huge dominant media are so dominant, it will be hard to dislodge them just because they have the market share they do? Or is it more the problem that the reason they're so dominant is that they're fueled by, you know, the crack of interaction and engagement, right? Uh, let me make an analogy. Is it the case that Exxon and BP are such big companies, it's hard to knock them off their pedestal? Or is the problem or the challenge with uh, climate change the fact that we're all addicted to gasoline and they're the gasoline companies? Um, I definitely think that the companies 
like a lot of di a different world is possible. So the companies will not always be the dominant companies, and I think they know that. Uh, you know, you see TikTok uh, rising, you see people experimenting with other platforms. We have a phrase that uh, John Height often says: "Moral thinking is for social doing." It's hard to get people to use a platform uh, to post pictures of their kids if they don't think it's if they don't trust it, if they don't think it's good for the world. And so I think the companies realize that it's not just a moral position to try to make their platforms better. It's actually like in, it's in their long-term, it's a long-term necessity to be perceived as better for the world. I don't know if they can move fast enough to get there. And so I think the other companies might, the, the small companies of the upstarts might beat them. But I do believe that moral thinking is for social doing, that people are not in the long-term going to use a platform that they think is bad for the world. And the thing to look at is, you know, like maybe I'll go on there sometimes and, you know, just in case my old high school friend posts something. So I might use it occasionally. So I, I don't think like readership or usage is, is the problem. I think posting is the problem. So you like, are people posting pictures of their kids anymore? Are people posting their vacation photos anymore? Um, on Twitter, you, you, you can see Elon Musk asking, he's, he's always bragging about how much engagement he's getting, but he's sort of intimating that, people aren't posting, right? Like he's inviting people to post more, post more. And if people aren't posting, like that's the ball game, right? Like, like it's, it's, then it's just Netflix. If it's just like a bunch of people, like, you know, making viral videos, like social media needs people to want to post there. And if people think that this isn't a safe place for me to post my life, it's not going to work. Ravi Iyer is managing director of the Psychology of Technology Institute at the USC Neely Center. He's a former product manager at Meta. And I thank him very much. Thank you, Ravi. Thanks. And now the spiel. New Zealand has a new prime minister, Chris Hipkins, a name you will likely never hear again if he's anything like other New Zealand prime ministers, except the last one. Through her charisma, policies, biography, and savvy, Hipkins' predecessor, Jacinda Ardern, earned renown. And the reason that Jacinda Ardern is no longer leader of that country is, according to Jacinda Ardern, I know what this job takes. And I know that I no longer have enough in the tank to do it justice. It's that simple. Which was interpreted as an awareness of a term that's very much on people's minds these days, burnout. Ardern wasn't just the second ever head of state to have a baby in office. And the young woman who steered her nation through COVID with just about the world's lowest death rate per capita, she also became a self-care shiro, setting an example to emulate. New York Times, Jacinda Ardern says no to burnout. Axios, Ardern's exit after unprecedented threats shows toll of burnout for women leaders. Vogue, in her decision to step down, Ardern is showing her leadership instinct until the end, trusting your gut, and when the moment comes, doing what's best for you. That actually seems quite the opposite of leadership, something of a definition of selfishness. Here's Elle magazine. It's an empowering move, one that, giving up power that is, one that allows us to regain control, look at our lives holistically and make positive change, be it in spending more time with family as Ardern plans to do, focusing on our well-being, learning to put ourselves first, go down an entirely new route, or even making the great leap into nothing. Now, a couple of caveats. 
Art Earn is absolutely, absolutely within her rights as a person, as a leader, to recognize that she's a human being with frailty and needs. And even if New Zealand is, compared to the U.S., a functional, happy society with the bonds of community still in place, her job is extremely stressful. She opted for lockdown measures, and they saved lives, but they also sparked protests and a lot of pushback. She's the head of state at a time of inflation, and she's getting blame for that unfairly. I don't think that burnout, a word that she never said in her press conference though, best describes her decision. Basically, it's that in a parliamentary system, a weakened, less popular head of government will often bow out to make way for a more plausible successor from within her party. And she's done so because she's good at reading the tea leaves, not because she's desperate to curl up with a chamomile beside a snuggly fire. Ardern's not lying or even misleading. She was a leader with diminishing political options who correctly assessed the situation. A situation that also included job stress, but also that stress was compounded by her diminishing political options. All right. All this so far has been specific to Ardern. I want to get into a thought that I think I shouldn't have had. A notion I couldn't get out of my head. I kicked it around. What I do is I don't immediately opine. I talk it over with loved ones. I do this... I do this uh, often. I read things, but I do have a daily podcast. It's called The Gist. You know it. And when no one else is really talking about an issue, even if it's maybe treading on grounds that will paint me as the great Santini, I kind of have to go for it. I shouldn't, but I will. Here goes. The celebration of Ardern's recognition of burnout, the applause for her wisdom and bravery, we have to admit, don't we, is just a little bit in tension with the loudest voices of those approving of her, who also always tell us that the stakes of activism, of being active, of leadership, of fighting against the forces of evil, the stakes couldn't be higher. That's why it's so important to fight the good fight and do the work. So I do sympathize when a progressive or maybe progressive signifying world leader bows out because of the stress and the toll, but it's a stress and toll that's portrayed as fighting really nefarious forces that need to be fought, the forces of evil. And you know who doesn't engage in self-care or whoever takes a me day, as far as I can tell? Donald Trump, Jair Bolsonaro, Vladimir Putin. That guy is always advancing, literally advancing, never retreating. He does not surrender. He does not go on to live, what is it, in a world that's living holistically and making positive changes. So if it's a pitched battle between activists who talk about the stakes and malefactors who represent destruction, aren't the activists acknowledging that they're at a giant disadvantage and by removing themselves from the battlefield, putting their enemies at a much greater advantage. And aren't the forces of light, to take our Tolkien construction, aren't they showing their enemies that they can be defeated and how they can be defeated? You know, Martin Luther King moved into the Chicago projects to show the world how terrible the Chicago projects were. He did so while battling serious depression. MLK struggled with depression his whole life. Abraham Lincoln did too. Yeah, I know. These are impossible moral beacons to the mere mortals around now. Impossible to emulate them. Only they actually are literally or were mere mortals before their near deification. 
And we are told about the importance of meeting this, this dire, this critical moment with nothing short of the resolve that it took to win critical battles in the past. I don't hear anyone today saying Black Lives Matter, of course, we can't fight as hard as they did during the civil rights era. The notion is we have to fight just as hard. I think they probably do. But it's not fighting just as hard if you also celebrate bowing out to do what's right for you. And like I said, Trump's tank seems perpetually full. Here's a, here's a 76-year-old obese man given to fits of rage, but somehow he has no off switch. He doesn't go into self-care mode. I mean, take this example. Writing in The New Yorker, Jill Lepore citing the work of the January 6th commission, which, quote, counted at least 200 attempts, which he, meaning Trump, made to influence state or local officials by phone, text, posts, or public remarks. A Trump campaign spreadsheet documents efforts to contact more than 190 Republican state legislators in Arizona, Georgia, and Michigan alone. Well, what a motor on that guy. Sauron never took a day off from creating orcs, did he? You know, after equity, the most common word used by activists is exhausted. In May, Sadvi Mohan Kumar, a junior undergraduate at the College of New Jersey, gave a TED Talk called, We Need to Fight Activism Fatigue. Here's a clip. Activism fatigue is the feeling of exhaustion when you've been learning every nuance of every issue, yet it never seems to be enough. And it's the feeling when you tirelessly campaign for change in your community, but never reap the rewards of your hard work. And it's the feeling when you opened your news app this morning and read about what's going on in Ukraine, but then got a notification about another school shooting. So we should talk about gun laws now. But did you hear about that new law that's restricting abortion access? Or the fact that Syrian refugees are still being relocated? Did you know Flint still does not have access to clean water? Unequal access to education? Child brides? The Amazon rainforest is still dying. There are concentration camps in China today, and no one is talking about them. People are talking about it. That's how it came up on your app, which maybe you should change the settings of. Also, Flint has had water for going on three years now. It'll be four in February. It's a horrible crisis. The results are still being shown in children's development there. But there's water. Flint does have clean water, has for years. So I don't know. Maybe it's fatiguing when progress is made, but then is ignored because untruthful memes are more powerful than just looking into the facts. All right, that's one undergrad, but the sentiment is everywhere. How exhausting it is to advocate for change. Compared to what? Compared to not gluing your hand on an oil painting? Or compared to the generally hard work that so many people do of improving the world with more targeted and practical solutions? They're less dramatic, they're less grandiose, but they actually get the job done. Might leave a little in the tank also. Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, for whom I have a lot of respect in many ways, told the New York Times that she thinks of quitting AOC. I didn't even know if I was going to run for re-election this year. New York Times, really, why? Answer, it's the incoming, it's the stress, it's the violence, it's the lack of support from your own party. It's your own party thinking you're the enemy. Well... 
You got elected, and then you told other Democrats they were on notice if they weren't progressive enough, and then you primaried them or organized primaries against them because you were trying to pick off moderate Democrats. You were successful in a few cases, unsuccessful in more cases. But yeah, that was your choice in executing your theory of change, which I think is wrong, but I know is going to get you marked as something as less than a team player. Again, I'm sounding like Robert Duvall in that movie. I don't want to just pick on young or youngish women who've removed themselves from the arena over stress. In New York City, Corey Johnson decided against running for mayor, citing mental health. I've had on Jason Kander, who talked about bowing out of electoral politics to care for his PTSD. And another counterpoint to women who've exited isn't just men who've exited. Let's talk about women who stick it out. I think of Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth, who, like Ardern, had a baby while in office. The Senate is not an institution that makes childcare easy, and she doesn't live in a country with maternal leave, unlike Ardern. Duckworth is doing this all as a double amputee, by the way. Again, it's tough to compare real people to impossible standards, but Tammy Duckworth's real. And yeah, if Tammy Duckworth said, I couldn't do it anymore, we'd have to be understanding. But shouldn't the celebration be of doing it at least as much as of not doing it? We definitely as a society, have undergone a shift away from insensitivity. We were so ignorant of mental health. We were so callous. We didn't identify with the humanity of everyone else. We were sexist. Absolutely, we still are. Absolutely true. But the shift isn't just from insensitivity to now a properly calibrated sensitivity. Because when we favor the virtue of sensitivity, we're choosing against the virtue of resilience. Not always. Sometimes it's just proper sensitivity. Sometimes that which is called resilience is something like unrealism or toughening it out or cruelty on the part of the person advocating it. And, you know, in general, it's counterproductive to paint the world in absolutes. I know Simone Biles wasn't a coward for pulling out of a few Olympic events. It is dangerous when you're twisting in the air. But I question whether she's more heroic for pulling out of the Olympics than she is for being the greatest gymnast of all time. And that took more sacrifice and pain than the average person could possibly understand. Again, it's not really about Jacinda Ardern. Go live, laugh, love, Jacinda, I say to thee. But if this is a fight, if this is the struggle we're told it is, the combatants need to ask themselves, who has the advantage, the sensitive or the resilient? I'd say you have to have some of both, keeping in mind that the enemies, their tanks seem to be perpetually on full. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca is the Prime Minister of New Zealand. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Thanks for listening. When you tell them that Sauron lives because of you! And you will die because of me! Yeah!